death is a mystery. Now the good news is it's a mystery that every single one of us will someday solve. Bad news is we won't be around to tell anybody about it. When I use the word mystery here, I'm using it in its theological sense. Theologically speaking, a mystery is a truth that we can know something about, whatever God has revealed to us, but which we cannot understand completely with our finite human minds. And that's the way it is with death. There are certain things, thankfully, that God has made clear to us about the end of our lives here on earth. He's done that through the scriptures, through his written word, and through his church. But there's a lot about death and its aftermath that we don't know. A lot that remains hidden from our mortal lives. As I indicated a few moments ago, there's only one way to find out that information. I presume that most of us are not too anxious to have that enlightening experience any time in the near future. So I will focus this morning on what we do know. My homily today will be about some of those aspects of the mystery of death that we do understand, some of the aspects that God has revealed to us already. I'm also going to deal with some of the erroneous ideas about death that I've encountered in certain Catholics and in others during my 32-plus years of priestly ministry. The first point to be made in this regard is that although some people blame God for the existence of death, He's not the source of it. He's made that very clear to us. As today's first reading from the Book of Wisdom puts it, God did not make death, nor does He rejoice in the destruction of the living. For He fashioned all things that they might have being. God formed man to be imperishable. Death became part of the human experience only after Adam and Eve sinned in response to the temptation of the devil. God didn't do it. It's not God's fault. As the writer of Wisdom puts it, by the envy of the devil, death entered the world. So if we're going to blame anybody for death, we should blame Satan, rightly so. God, as we say in the Creed, is the Lord and giver of life. He's not the dealer of death. It's precisely because he's the Lord and giver of life that he sent his son to die on that cross 2,000 years ago for us. Jesus said, I have come that they might have not death. He said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus also said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that all who believe in him might not perish, might not die, but might have eternal life. When Jesus refers to dying in that last verse, of course, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death, the death of the soul, what the Bible often calls the second death. Physical death, the first death, is unavoidable. We all know that. It's one of the residual effects of original sin. The second death, on the other hand, is avoidable. It's avoidable by the sanctifying grace that has its source in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The grace that comes to us for the first time in the sacrament of baptism and is preserved in us 
by a life of faith and a life of charity. And if perchance we lose that grace by committing a mortal sin somewhere along the line in our lives, good news is it can be restored. The ordinary way for sanctifying grace to be restored is in and through the sacrament of reconciliation, penance, confession. The condition of our soul at the time of death determines what happens to us afterward. In death, our soul is separated from our body. That's what death is. It's a separation of body from soul. Our soul is then judged by God. And according to how it's judged, it goes to one of three places, heaven, hell, or purgatory. Now those who go to purgatory are assured of their salvation. They're on their way to heaven. And they know it. That's why there's great joy as well as great suffering in purgatory. But they also know that they're not quite ready for heaven. They know that because the Bible says that nothing impure can enter the kingdom of God. Nothing. You can't have one sinful attitude in you, in your soul, and get through the pearly gates. Besides that, you also have to attain a certain level of holiness to enter the kingdom of God. That's why the letter to the Hebrews tells us to, and here I quote, strive for that holiness without which no one can see the Lord. Now some non-Catholics don't believe in purgatory because they mistakenly think that the Catholic Church teaches that purgatory is some kind of second chance. But that's wrong. That's not what the Church teaches. Those who die without sanctifying grace in their souls, they go to hell. There are no second chances for them. Souls in purgatory are in the state of grace. They're with God. But they need to be cleaned up a bit before they can enter the eternal wedding banquet. Of course, the real tragedy, my brothers and sisters, is when you have Catholics who reject the Church's teaching on purgatory. And there are some who do. I hope those Catholics never have Masses said for their deceased relatives and friends. Because if they do, they'll be contradicting themselves. The only reason to have a Mass offered for a deceased person, the only reason to pray for the dead at all, is if purgatory exists. If purgatory does not exist, then there's only heaven and hell. But souls in heaven don't need prayers, because they've already arrived. And souls in hell cannot be helped by our prayers, because hell is eternal. Once you're in, there's no way to get out. When we have masses offered for our deceased relatives and friends, or pray other prayers for them, we're doing something that presumes the existence of purgatory. I pray for my deceased relatives and friends every single day of my life. Since none of them is a canonized saint, as far as I know, I presume they all need some purification on their way to the kingdom. They might say, but Father Ray, what if they've already been fully purified and are now in heaven? Well, then the grace will go to some other souls who need it. No prayer for the dead is ever a wasted prayer.
What I said so far concerns our souls. What about our bodies? Every human person, after all, has a soul and a body. This incidentally is why when somebody dies, it's wrong to say that they are now an angel in heaven. Unless we're speaking metaphorically. That's because angels are pure spirits. They have no bodies. Although when they have appeared to people over the centuries, God has sometimes allowed them to assume a human form. But in and of themselves, they don't have bodies. Now since we do have bodies, we are in a very real sense incomplete without them. Which is initially our situation after death. As I said earlier, when we die, our bodies are separated from our souls. Under normal circumstances, our bodies then decay and decompose. But happily, that's not the end of the story. As Catholics, we believe that our bodies will be raised up. That they will be raised up in an immortal, glorified state at the final judgment at the end of the world. And at that time, our souls will be reunited to our bodies, our risen bodies, and everyone will end up body and soul in either heaven or hell. Purgatory will cease to exist when all those who need to pass through it have done so. Now this is why we show respect for the body of a person even after that person has died. Their lifeless physical body is still important because it foreshadows the risen body that they will have someday for all eternity. That means it should be interred in some fashion, for example, in a grave or in a mausoleum, even after cremation. It does not show proper respect for Uncle Joe's cremated body to scatter his ashes to the four winds at Westerly Town Beach, because that's where he liked to hang out every summer. Nor does it show proper respect for mom's body to keep her ashes on the mantle above the fireplace in your living room. Hopefully we're all clear about that, because there are a lot of Catholics who aren't. I was trying to find a way to conclude this homily on the mystery of death. And lo and behold, I came across a little story that a parishioner had emailed to me 15 years ago. Saved it. I knew I'd use it one of these days. Let me read it to you now. I think it will end things on a positive note. A sick man turned to his doctor as he was preparing to leave the examination room. And he said, Doctor, I'm afraid to die. Tell me what lies on the other side. Very quietly, the doctor said, I don't know. You don't know? You, a Christian man, don't know what's on the other side? The doctor was holding the handle of a door, on the other side of which came a sound of scratching and whining. As he opened the door, a dog sprang into the room and leaped on him with an eager show of gladness. Sounds like Father Nation's dog. Turning to the patient, the doctor said, did you notice my dog? 
He's never been in this room before. He didn't know what was inside. He knew nothing except that his master was here. And when the door opened, he sprang in without fear. I know little of what is on the other side of death, but I do know one thing. I know that my master is there, and that is enough. May it also be enough for us.